Okay. Uh, welcome everybody to class three of um, the limits of rationalism actually is going to be the name of this class, but it's class three of uh, rationalism versus mysticism. So I'll start off with a story because I know how much we love stories. This one's much shorter than, uh, than the one from last time. A monk was meditating in the desert when a beggar came up to him and said, I need to eat. The monk who was almost reaching the point of perfect harmony with the spiritual world did not answer. I need to eat, insisted the beggar. Go to the town and ask someone else. Can't you see that you're bothering me? I'm trying to communicate with the angels. And the beggar turned into an angel. What a pity you almost made it, he remarked before leaving. So that's from Paolo Cello. So what, is, what does that mean? It's, uh, say it again? From what? From Paolo Cello. It's a, he's, a, uh, he's a great author. He wrote The Alchemist, I believe. And I, it's a great book, highly recommended. And he also wrote The Warrior of the Light, a few different good books like that. Um, so, so from all you guys, what do you, what do you make of that story? Well, how does it hit you and what does it mean to you? It's good. It's like you assume. Oh, sorry. Yes. No, you could go first. Yeah. Um, it's like they think that they need to like read the certain amount of verse. It reminds me of a story of two monks walking and there's a woman trying to cross over. The I love that sort of, one, of course. It reminds me of that. You know, it's like they're so by the book that they miss the essence of what mm. meditation or the religion or whatever it is. Yeah. And and that's exactly the way that I take it. Who else? What do you what do you guys think? There's a dichotomy in Judaism between uh, Ben Adam the Makom and Ben Adam the Chavero, which reminds me of similarly, although it's not precisely hey, the same thing. Yes, 100%. So Saul, this is good. Saul already knows this story. The one with the, the monk meditating on the mountaintop and then the guy turns into an angel. Of course, you heard that 27 times uh, from me already. I'm sure you guys might have heard this story, but it's it really... Like you said, Doc, it's exactly right. There's Ben Adam Lamakom, Ben Adam Haveron. To, to divorce the two too strictly is not doing justice to the continuity between the two. And, you know, I just wanted to start off that way because despite the fact that this class was called Rationalism versus Mysticism, again, I'm going to try to delve more into mysticism and what I think of it. And it's, it's such an unbelievable topic because it, it has so much to it. And I think a lot of us were brought up with the more rationalistic approach, like Haram Bam, and that's a fantastic approach. But I, I, I'm, you know, first getting into this mystical stuff. So for me, it's much more, more of a pleasure to talk about that. But I don't want that to mean in any way that we disregard, you know, the practicality of this world and the practicality of helping people on this plane. You know, you could believe in seventh heaven and whatever you want. You could believe in all these kind of crazy things. But at the end of the day, if you abandon your family in order to go become a monk, or if you abandon um, your everyday obligations in order to seek enlightenment, then you're doing the opposite of seeking enlightenment. Because enlightenment is fundamentally not about the self. It's about the non-self, as Rabbi Solomon Sassoon would have said. And uh, I think that's such a beautiful quote that he has here. I'll read it to you guys. It is not easy for a person... To be at all times. Oh, by the way, who is Rabbi Solomon Sassoon? Of course, Cynthia knows. Exactly. It's Haki's father. It's uh, Rabbi Shaman Rani Benin's teacher. Unbelievable man. Their family was known as the Rothschilds of the East. They were very wealthy. Friend of the Queen. queen, Very philanthropic. They lived in Britain. They lived in India. Um, 
and he has an unbelievable, unbelievable book called Reality Revisited on physics, you know, of his time. He died in 1985, but it was very, you know, current at his time. And he was an unbelievable rabbi and scholar and wrote books on, on the interpretation of the Torah and unbelievable things that he said. So here's one quote of his that Rabbi Shama quotes, I think, in Recalling the Covenant. It is not easy for a person to be at all times conscious of the continuous inflow of the creative field into him. In the Pentateuch, in the Torah, there are many precepts expressly designed to heighten sensitivity to this field, right? So there's mitzvot that we have that are trying to make us more sensitive to this idea. Sensitivity to the existence of the world of the non-ego and to its demands is called holiness. So he's defining holiness for us. He's saying, what is considered holy? Holy is fundamentally that which is not about you. So we just learned in Rabbi Hittari's class something so beautiful that Adam Harishon, and when he, he when he's first created and when Hava is first created, he doesn't, you know, merit this idea of knowing God until he knows Hava. And he never even speaks to God until he knows Hava. What does that mean? That means until you recognize the human other, you're incapable of recognizing the divine other. I think that's the way Rabbi Sachs would have put it. So... It's such an amazing concept because we could get lost on this plane of reality and say, oh, I'm, I'm all about God and I'm going to divorce myself from society and I'm going to be a person that's separate. And therefore, as a Nazir, I'm going to be a monk who is all about God. But you're doing the opposite if you're not recognizing the fact that that becomes all about your ego, if you're only doing it for yourself. So you can't escape the, you know, society, you can't escape your duties in that way. You kind of have to balance everything especially within Judaism. Sensitivity to the existence of the world of the non-ego and to its demands is called holiness. Holiness brings about a purification of the inner sense, which makes a man conscious of the presence of the Lord standing over him. Right? So that's what holiness does. It gives you this knowledge of God, da'at Hashem in the words of Harambam, a knowledge of God at all times. A religion primarily directed to states of mind leaves the arrogant will unsubdued. Right. So if if a religion is all about achieving states of ecstasy and it's only about getting high on God, you're barking up the wrong tree. That's not God, because God is not just this good feeling. God is the totality of all of it. He's the yin and the yang. He's the good and the bad. And you have to kind of embrace the whole story rather than just seek after a good feeling. And just cling to that oceanic, which we're going to get to later. I have a interesting so, uh, sources for tonight. So he continues, those who stress the bliss to be enjoyed in afterlife, which, is, which it is claimed provides a much more spiritual motive. In truth, however, the latter is a much more self-centered one. So somebody who's working only for the sake of Olam Haba, you, you might say that's such a, a noble thing. He, he's seeking closeness with God. But really, it might become very selfish, right? Namely, the pleasure to which the ego will enjoy. Now, this is actually a motive which undermines the very result it sets out to realize. For a self, by acting so as to have enjoyment in paradise and afterlife, is actually distancing itself from the non-ego level, which alone bestows immortality. Right? So, that's the, the, the hilarious part about all of this, is as the, the Eastern philosophy would say, is that the idea of an ego in the first place is an illusion. So in the anyway, whatever it is that you're trying to cultivate, this separate sense of a self, 
it might exist as a social construct, and that's fine. We can play this game of egos. But the reason why true enlightenment involves a realization that you as a separate ego don't exist, the reason why it's so profound is because that automatically leads you to one thing, and that is love. That is externalized love. Because you, we, we could talk about you know, self-love in a, in a psychological sense, and that's very nice. But truly and really, the love that, that is supposed to exist once a person becomes enlightened is this love that is directed outwards. And, you know, so just a, a word, does, does that make sense to you guys? That if there is a real self that you are separately, separately. then it, it makes all the sense in the world to just be selfish. But, but if there is really no self, the only thing there is left to do now is, is be outwardly in a relationship with everything out there. And that's, that connection is love in a way. So any, any questions so far before I uh, go too far off the handle? Okay. Hi, Rabbi. Um, he's checking on me to see how much heresy I'm spreading. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You're the best. <laughs> so, so, um, so that to me is, is an unbelievable concept. Now, what does this mean? This idea of the, of the ego not being truly existing. So the way you could think about it is who are you in space, right? If I want to talk about Michael Franco, I always give this analogy it's from Alan Watts, a really brilliant philosopher who died in, I think, 1973 or something. He says, imagine a, I, you want to talk about a black dot. Has anybody ever seen a black dot in isolation? No, you, nobody's ever really seen a black dot. You can only talk about a black dot that's on a white page, right? You need fundamentally to have a white page to have a black dot. So therefore, to talk about the black dot, it's not really black dot. It's black dot white page, right? They both exist concurrently. So Michael Franco is not really Michael Franco. It's Michael Franco environment. Biologists will tell you the same thing, right? Like if you want to talk about the kangaroo, you can't think about the kangaroo unless you talk about the whole habitat in Australia. So really it's kangaroo habitat. And if you want to talk about that habitat, you have to talk about the continent and then, you know, so on and so forth, so forth outwardly. You really, in a, in a very mystical sense, but in a very true sense, I think logically, you really are the universe in that sense, because it's impossible to speak about you without speaking about everything else around you, because you imply all of that. You're in relationship with all of that all the time. There's this one picture in this snapshot of time that the whole universe would, be, would not be exactly as it is unless you were there to be in relationship with it. And we discussed in previous classes how that makes sense, that, that you're in the world, but the world is also inside of you. Your brain is in this world, but the world is occurring in your consciousness and in your brain. So that's in space. How about in time? So I said, when did you begin? Did you begin when you were born? Well, you could say well, I was an embryo. I said, okay, did you begin when the sperm hit the egg? Did you begin with that, you know, evil glint in your father's eye? Or did you begin with the evil glint in your grandfather's eye? Or did you begin in the Big Bang? Because really, the entire unfoldment of this whole process led to this very moment right now. So in a way, you are the outstretched arm of the Big Bang right now. You can imagine it as like this beautiful, I imagine somebody spilling you know, like to have on like these TV shows, somebody spilling uh, ink into water, 
or somebody's spilling paint onto a page or something like, and it's kind of just like dissolves and you, you see the pattern that it makes in the water. And it's so it's very artsy and it's very beautiful, but it's, to me, it really expresses this idea. Like you are this propagation of energy leading to this very moment from the big bang. Why do you say you are and not you are the result? So because it's a very good question. Um, it has a lot to do with what is time and that, you know, that, that's, that's yeah, really. If we're talking about from this perspective, the outside of time. Exactly. And even, even space cannot be spoken about without time because space is not a separate thing. It's space time. So once you start talking about space time and your relationship to all of space time and the whole universe, because I did space and time. Well, in reality, you are all of that space time. Yeah, well, you're not separate from the Big Bang. You are the result. Uh, you, you, in other words, it's not like the Big Bang happened and then you were created from something else. Yes, exactly. You, you created, are the stuff. You're literally the stuff. Of yeah, it. it's the same stuff. That's you. You're it's not remarkable. different or separate. It's really a remarkable thing. You are stardust. And we don't, we don't really think about it that way. But, uh, you know, next time you're, you're having a fight with somebody, you could say, like, uh, you're just some kind of star. You know, that's, that's kind of manifesting. And as it's an the same thing with, with your parents. Like, you're not the result of your parents getting together. You are the essence. You, the, their DNA is in you. You are yep. that. 100%. You know, it's not, it, you're, you're separating yourself by saying you're the result. That sounds like you're a distinct entity, but you're not. Exactly. And, and. The, the way I like to, the Alan Watts puts it, that's so brilliant, is like you walk by, let's say a person is walking to work every day, lives on the coast, and every day he sees the same whirlpool. Is that whirlpool the same water molecules every single day? Of course not. And yet, somehow, this person knows that it's the same whirlpool every single day because it's the same pattern of energy every single day. And your molecules in your body are constantly changing and you're eating things and you're going to the bathroom and it's, it's a cycling and there's energy flowing into you and out of you. And for some reason, we evolved only to see what we see and only to feel what we feel. And yet there's really all this stuff happening that we kind of ignore. We ignore the thermal energy that's coming into us and the thermal energy leaving us and the electromagnetic energy and all that stuff and the vibrations and everything coming in and out. And yet it's still there. It's just that for whatever biological utility we happen to be finding ourselves in this level of consciousness right now. So I think that's really interesting. Right. And, you know, like you like to look at yourself as your body and you're surrounded by epithelium and, you know, there's the outside and the inside, but exactly like you, you just said, it's really a flow going yep. through you. You know, yep. you, you got stuff going in you, you got stuff coming out of you. You're absorbing you know, gases and you're uh, expelling it constantly. You're not separate from the environment, obviously. Yeah. You know, it's all related and, and together. Absolutely. And, and uh, I love how you said that because inside and out, there can be no insides without outsides. And there can be no outsides without insides. Like nobody ever saw, you know, a, uh, a bowl that only had an inside and no outside that wouldn't be a bowl and vice versa. It's impossible. Try to find something that doesn't have its opposite. And like, you know, from a very cold and removed perspective, we could understand all the evil in the world. I'm not saying that we should ever justify evil. I'm, please don't call me as saying that every week I say something more controversial somehow. But what I am saying is you cannot have plus 10 without minus 10. So when you're complaining to God about your suffering, that's fine. And you should and express that. 
But from a very cold and removed philosophical perspective, just realize yin and yang fundamentally need each other and are one and the same. You cannot have the plus 10 without the minus 10. You can't have life without death. So I think that's what it means when they say life is suffering in a way. A fundamental ingredient to having life and its fragility is death and is suffering. And part of having pleasure is suffering as well. Well, I mean, depending on what you mean by, by good and evil, I feel like you could have um, a scenario of, of optimal, yes. um, you know, goodness or, or like human. I mean, the potential for, that's what I mean. I should have said that. The potential right. for negative 10 needs to exist for the potential for positive 10 to exist. The concept of, of ultimate good doesn't exist without the concept of an ultimate evil. Yes, so, exactly. hundred percent. That's exactly it. And, you know, one, one uh, metaphor that I've heard from my rabbi in Israel that I think is so brilliant. Uh, one of my rabbis who has a great website I highly recommend called the four questions of Judaism. He says that we are, can be thought of as a dream in the mind of God. So what does Haram Baum say? Haram Baum says, the, about God, he says, I think Ibn Ezra also quotes it before Arambam. Now, what does that mean? God is the Yodeya, he's the knower, the Yadua, he is the known, and the Da'atma, the knowledge itself. He's all of those things simultaneously. So, the analogy that can be given is God is the dream, the dreamer, and that which is dreamt. So you think about it that way. You say, okay, what is our reality? We, we are kind of like these characters that are being dreamt up by God. And, you know, eventually the dream will end. But God is the dreamer. He is the dream itself. And he is that which is dreamt. And it's so amazing to think of it that way because you start to realize this idea of panentheism, which is a very you know, mystical concept, but it, it kind of means that it's not pantheism. Let me just make that clear because that's, you know, I get even more trouble. Pantheism is the idea that, that God is literally the nature around you. What I'm trying to say is the panentheism is succinctly is God is in everything and everything is in God. So you could kind of think of it as you could find God in everything, but in reality, there's a certain level of illusion to it. If you say God is literally this table, there might be more of an issue to that. That's more pantheism. This is the way I think of it, at least. It might not be actually what's true. But panentheism, so basically disregard everything I ever say. That's, that's what I take everything I say with a grain of salt and never take me seriously, please, God. Panentheism, uh, I hope they give me that sound bite when they're, when they're <laughs> doing the character assassination in 10 years. Um, panentheism is the idea that it's it really in reality, this is not absolute truth. This is just what I'm seeing. This is just what I'm feeling. But there is something beyond the what I'm what I'm feeling and seeing and touching that is kind of hiding. And that is the best word for that is God. And we kind of lose the ability to speak about it at this point. But it's, so, it's just very interesting food for thought. And, and yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea to think about because it allows you to relate to God in a way that is kind of novel and saying, okay, you know, God is kind of dreaming me up and I'm, you know, I can join with God and merge with God if I kind of get in sync with whatever dream is happening. 
And, you know, the less that I'm neurotic about what's going on in my life, I could just realize, okay, I'm a manifestation of God today. I wake up in the morning. God is dreaming up this day for me. And I am it. I am all of it. And I'm, you know, I'm not literally God in this separate self kind of a sense, but I'm God just like you're God and everything else is God around us. And I think that's a beautiful uh, idea. Anybody have any questions or comments before we move on? No. Okay, great. Great. Um, and she's, uh, not great. If you, if you have a question or comment, please feel free. Um, okay. So now the, we'll go into the next phase of the Straight class. If we don't finish these sources, we'll continue next time. Um, and also I'm trying to find, you know, I, I, I was reading, uh, Harav Natan Slifkin's stuff and it's interesting uh, and it's really good stuff, rationalism and mysticism. But I was so intrigued by the mystical stuff that I said, let me, let me kind of pivot a little bit into the, into the more of the mystical stuff. And if anybody's bothered by that, please send me an angry email or, you know, let me know what you request. And we'll, we'll go into the. But I think this stuff is, is very interesting. And um, let's see. Let's see what's uh, what's in stock for for this, these discussions, you know, because I think they really do translate into uh, a good practice of relating towards God and towards the mystical experience. Um, so let's read source number one for the limits of rationalism. In days gone by, this mind of mine used to stray wherever selfish desire or lust or pleasure would lead it. Today, this mind does not stray and is under the harmony of control, even as a wild elephant is controlled by the trainer. And that's from Buddha. Why did I quote that? Forgive me for, uh, you know, I, I hope it's not something too out there. But the reason I quoted that is because Jonathan Haidt is going to build off of that. Uh, he's, he's a social psychologist. He's going to build off of this idea of Buddha's uh, quintessential elephant, that the elephant is like this part of our thoughts and our mind that seems to really be in control. And, you know, finally, when a person is becoming more and more enlightened, quote unquote, they're able to get their mind more under control. They're able to tame that wild elephant. Now, this is what Plato says, something similar. The horse that is on the right or nobler side is upright in frame and well-jointed with a high neck and a regal nose. He is a lover of honor with modesty and self-control, companion to true glory. He needs no whip and is guided by verbal commands alone. All right, so that's the good horse inside of us. The other horse is a crooked, great jumble of limbs, Companion to wild beast boasts and indecency. He is shaggy around the ears, deaf as a post, and just barely yields to, to horsewhip and goad combined. Right? So it's almost like a different idea that we have the Yetzir HaTov and Yetzir Hara. So while Buddha would see it more as a unified idea, Plato is seeing it more as something that's bifurcated into two and something that the Hachamim very often talk about in terms of Yetzir HaTov and Yetzir Hara. In the Buddha example, yeah, um, it sounded like it was kind of separate ideas, also. Yeah, the elephant and the. Oh yes, that's right. The, the elephant and the trainer. Yeah, so one hundred percent. You're one hundred percent right that there is this dichotomy, um, and I guess Plato would even more so. I mean, yeah, there was there was a human, and then there was yes. something separate from the human. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. So there is this, a separation and a bifurcation. I guess it's a difference of hierarchy where Buddha would see it more as like there's this rider and then the, the elephant and the rider trying to tame the elephant, whereas Plato would see 
that there's these, you know, sometimes I'll go in this direction, sometimes I'll go in that direction. And there's kind of three people. There's the rider and then two different horses. And it's like, which horse is he going to follow? Well, at, least they're both horses. at least they're both horses. Exactly. And this one, it's just one elephant and he's doing whatever he wants. So that's, I guess in that sense, it's more unified, but very good point. The Buddha, the Buddha analogy reminds me <clears throat> of, you know, our physiology of our uh, nervous system with the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the prefrontal cortex, you know, sitting on top of the, uh, the you know, the more primitive brain, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that analogy does does work. In other words, our our decisions are often made before we can think of them. Yes. And, you know, because that's the elephant, you know, he knows mm -hmm. kind of what he wants. And sometimes we even come up with excuses explaining our decisions. Uh, and this is, you know, proven by experimentation because we want to sound like we're rational. And yes. so we come up with, excuses explaining why the elephant decided to go left or right but really yep. we don't know <laughs> we're just 100 that's exactly what height is going to say and that's and and that's that's source number three by the way the rider evolved to serve the elephant that's exactly what you're saying is that we think that the rider is the main like we're the rider we say okay i'm the rider and then there's this elephant who does this crazy stuff and curses out the taxi driver and goes and eats too much sometimes but it's like, no, 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 honey, you are the elephant. And the rider evolved to serve the elephant. So you're more elephant than rider even. Yeah. What, like, what's the utility of, of describing the elephant as like a separate being as being controlled? Like, I feel like it makes more sense to think mm -hmm. of the elephant as something within you. Yes. So that's what Hyde is going to say. He's well, it's because we don't understand. We don't understand the elephant. We don't speak elephant, you know? Mm -hmm. Like we don't understand our own desires and emotions um, and how they come about. And we don't yeah. know why we're going to think our next thought. Uh, and we don't, you know, we don't really know ourselves the way we think our, we know ourselves. That, that's yeah. the difference between yeah. us. What you think very, like you were saying earlier, what you think very often is logic is really just post facto. It's just the post facto uh, attempt at explaining away or rationalizing the emotion that preceded it. And so often in human conflict, it becomes even more apparent that that's the case. You know, and it's, it's important to keep that in mind whenever things are going on in your life that, you know, humans are not really rational beings. We're still animals at the end of the day. And for me, this, this is so, you know, it goes hand in hand with all the mystical stuff because if you're just a rational person, then you would think that that's the perfection that God is looking for. And that's the perfection, perfect way towards God is just rationalism. But because we're, we're fundamentally not these robotic, rational figures, we have this heart, we have this elephant inside of us. And, and we need to speak to that and get in sync with that in order to open ourselves to God truly and really. Sounds right. Like we're that's really very much what it is. And, and it's, you know, what, we don't understand this part of ourselves. You know, it's, it's, it seems like it decides on its own. Is that our free will? How do you want to define it? It's a, it's a very interesting topic of discussion, and it's, it's hard to really pin down. But I agree. It's, it's, it, it has a lot to do with that discussion of free will. Um, so let's read. And the next quote is from Height, number four. The controlled system, in contrast, is better seen as an advisor. 
it's a rider placed on the elephant's back to help the elephant make better choices, right? So in order for the elephant to, you know, be guided a little bit and goaded one way or another, we have this, this not, the rider is not a ruler. Instead, if he's an advisor, he's a humble advisor and the, the elephant is already calling the shots, but the advisor says, maybe turn left, maybe turn right, maybe wait five more minutes before eating. You know, or maybe, you know, eat the healthier option rather than the unhealthy option. The rider can see farther into the future and the rider can learn valuable information by talking to other riders or by reading maps. But the rider cannot order the elephant around against its will. Right. So when you try to will yourself to do something, very often you fail. People go on these new fad diets and they end up failing because your elephant is really much stronger than your conscious mind is. And it's almost try like not to, right? try not to eat a cookie, you know, that's in front of you. <clears throat> yep. It's like exactly the hardest it. thing. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. And you, you only have, you have to kind of bargain with this part of yourself. You have to like, you know, play a game with this elephant because otherwise it's just going to take over. And it, it knows very well all the tricks that you're going to try to play on it. And that's part of the, part of the mystical thing is that I think, very similar conversation, which is you can't will yourself to transcend yourself because that's try it's you trying to do that. It's kind of like you have to slip in by accident. So there's a famous story about, uh, I think uh, one of these British writers, like uh, classics, I'm not sure which book it is. I wish I remembered, but one of you guys will let me know next week or something that, that he, he was, uh, this guy was supposed to fight a bear and the bear knew it was either bear or I think it was a bear. And the bear knew somehow the next thought that was coming into the guy's mind. So anytime he's thinking, okay, I'm going to punch the guy here. I'm going to step this way. Blah, blah, he ends up, you know, not winning. And he's, he's not able to defeat this bear. And the bear is, you know, really kicking his butt. But, however, when the guy accidentally does something, he ends up defeating the bear. So I think the story was, that he's chopping down. He's so frustrated. He's like, I'm done with you. He goes to chop down his, uh, his tree and accidentally he, he swung it in a certain direction and it killed the bear, you know? And, and it's such a beautiful metaphor for ego transcendence because you can't lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't, you know, prevent turbulence by holding tighter to your, your seat. You have to kind of still that part of yourself and allow what's going to happen to happen. And that's why a lot of people would call it grace, like we mentioned last week. All right. So this, this writer of yours, which is your conscious mind, your thoughts, which is so often what we're trying to quiet down, if it maintains a good relationship with the ego, rather than saying, I'm going to kill you, Mr. Ego, or to that effect, to the elephant. Instead, if it befriends it and is nice to it, there's a, a constructive way maybe of slipping into that state of consciousness that we call the mystical. Um, any questions up until now or comments? Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say great. Um, <laughs> so next quote is from David Hume. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Right? So what does that mean? That means that the passions are primary. The passions are kind of number one. And reason is the slave of the passions. It's only this thing that's secondary to 
them. And you would think, oh, maybe that's not a good thing. All the philosophers, you know, almost every single philosopher other than Hume, because of the enlightenment, they were so enamored with uh, rationalism that they, they thought reason is, is, you know, top dog. But Hume, not so. He stands out really very much among them. And he's saying that really reason is a good master. Sorry, a lousy master, but a good servant. That's another quote. I'm not sure who says that one, but I know that's another quote out there. Reason is a lousy master, but a good servant. It's So the way that Alan Watts puts it is that you have so many organs in your body and your liver kind of does its job and your heart does its job and you don't really have to tell them anything to do. Your brain is very complex, but it's an organ just like any other. So in an ideal state of the world, we should be able to just use the brain when we need to. So when you're taking a math test, you tap into your brain, you're thinking, 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 you're left braining the whole thing, you're able to get 100 on the test. And then your, your brain kind of relaxes when you're talking to people and you stop being so neurotic, like, oh my God, did she notice the, uh, the thing in my teeth? Or was I not nice enough to the doorman when I walked in? Like all these neurotic things that are happening. Ideally, we should be able to not think so much and just kind of go with the flow. But why is that ideal? Like rationalism is also an evolutionary yes. that we developed as an organ. Yes. So what I would say is it's the equivalent of when your body mounts an inflammatory reaction, it evolved and it evolved for a good purpose, but sometimes the fever goes so high that it could kill the patient. So I think that's what mental illness is. Mental illness is, is the, the faculties are good. So neuroticism evolved for a good reason. Anxiety is protecting the organism because the organism is trying to ward off things that might happen in the future. That's very good for survival, but it could get out of hand. And like uh, Sapolsky would say, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers is that we used to have this acute stress response and be able to fight the, uh, the bear immediately, fight or flight, and then that's all the cortisol we need. And then we kind of go back into the parasympathetic nervous system. The problem becomes when in our day and age, we don't have these acute stresses anymore. And we're stuck in our day job and we have a mean boss who's yelling at us and we're developing ulcers, which, by the way, is really caused by H. pylori. Um, <laughs> most of them, almost all of them. But, you know, that's the, you know, the, you're going to develop hypertension, high blood pressure, uh, you know, all these terrible things as a result of the stress that you're going to have, probably high blood sugar, even a whole bunch of things, let alone mental illness, that correlate with chronic stress. So I think it's, yeah, something that originally was evolutionarily positive. But once we, we took it out of the servant. Exactly. And tried to make a master. Exactly. It's no longer a good servant for us. And it, it kind of usurped the position of uh, where it should have been. It didn't really know its place. Right. So next quote from Height. If you listen closely to moral arguments, you can sometimes hear something surprising that it is really the elephant holding the reins, guiding the rider. It is the elephant who decides what is good or bad, beautiful or ugly. Gut feelings, intuitions, and snap judgments happen constantly and automatically, as Malcolm Gladwell described in Blink. But only the rider can string sentences together and create arguments to give to other people. Right. So what's really going on is that the first thing that's happening is the emotional reaction, the intuition, the snap judgment. 
However, the only communicator that we really have is this rational brain. So in moral arguments, the rider goes beyond being just an advisor to the elephant. He becomes a lawyer fighting in the court of public opinion to persuade others of the elephant's point of view. Right. So now, as opposed to guiding the elephant and telling him maybe go this way or that way. Now, instead, the, the, it becomes a lawyer and it's trying to post facto defend what the elephant is already feeling. So it might not even be rational or logical. A person is feeling X, Y or Z. They're going to justify it. And, and sometimes sometimes the writer realizes that uh, there is no rational justification for whatever yep. it is that uh, that he wants. And he just uh, has to say, hey, I just want this or I don't yep. want this. I can't even explain to you how or why. And maybe I'm wrong, but that's just, you know, that's what I want yeah. or that's how I feel. Because not so many people are really willing and able to, to get in touch with this sense inside themselves that that's able to be mindful of, okay, I'm not really being so rational right now. I just am feeling a certain way. You know, but but there is a lot of benefit and value to to noticing, okay, I'm clearly biased here or I'm clearly rationalizing here. But things so often, especially in politics, they feel so true. They feel so real that we can't help but be swayed by that. And and at the end of the day, it's really just our unique intuition. And then we're using all these logical devices to try to justify our intuition post facto. So to me, that's that's a super interesting uh, idea. Um, one more quote from Hyde here. Uh, when asked to justify their condemnation of certain actions, some participants from both countries used unsupported declarations as a reason. For example, because it's wrong to eat your dog or because you're not supposed to cut up the flag. So what does this mean? He, he gave these things uh, called moral dumbfounding interviews. So he tried on purpose to see if he could dumbfound people based on their intuitive sense of what's moral. So one example is a family, an American white middle class, white picket fence, two kids, they're all white and blonde hair, have a dog, you know, and they, uh, the dog gets run over. Um, and let's say you're a liberal and you believe, or you're a libertarian, maybe that's even better to, to call it. You believe as long as it's not harming anybody, the dog's run over, it's killed. What do you do with the dog meat? So let me tell you this. In this example, hypothetically, the family decided to eat the dog. What do you think of that? Now, the, the beauty of this is that it, it's, it's doing what Dr. Nasser pointed out, that you can so easily now notice, okay, I know it's wrong. Intuitively, I know it's wrong. At least I'll speak for myself. Uh, just the feeling, gut feeling it's wrong. But then my logical brain cannot give a good reason in terms of care versus harm. And we'll get to that in a second. But a good, you know, libertarian reason for why it should be wrong. You guys agree with that? I mean, in some sense, it's right to eat the dog. Okay. Because the dog is a lot, you know, was was life and uh, and you eating the dog promotes life. Wasting yeah. the dog is is death. That's certainly a perspective that you can give. Yeah. And then what do you think, Cynthia? 
it's like if you have a cow, even though it's normal to eat cat or a goat, mm. but they're like your pet goat that eats with you at the table, like a dog. It's still, it shows a little sociopathy if you're able mm. to then eat that thing once it's dead. Well, that's not really one of the steps of grieving. Mm-hmm. Eating, right? Oh, then why yeah. don't we eat humans? <laughs> we should have oh, added that to Kubler. Like, we got to add that to Kubler Ross. You know, it's yeah. probably an extension of, um, of like our intuition against cannibalism. Ah, once interesting. Once we accept the dog into our home, beautiful, as a member of our household, fantastic. Yeah, it doesn't make moral sense to eat the dog. Very, very good. So now, based on what you just said, let's discuss how Jonathan Haidt breaks this down. And to me, he gives a level of moral clarity that makes so much more sense for me personally to be able to look at the world and politics and all this stuff than I ever had before. A lot of my friends have heard this from me, so bear with me if you have or haven't. But so he goes through five different moral intuitions. First of all uh, is care versus harm, meaning we could all agree if there is a murderer and the person who was murdered, we have this intuition that was wrong. This guy was a victim. He was harmed. And on that basis, it was wrong. Oh, and by the way, height is a moral intuitionist as opposed to a moral rationalist who is looking for some idea within rationalism. He's saying, no, really our ideas of morality come from gut feelings and intuitions. And he, these are the five categories that he determined based on a whole slew and a litany of studies worldwide, not just limited to one culture. And he traveled to India for a period of time. If you want, you could read his books, The Righteous Mind and The Happiness Hypothesis to shed more light on it. But I guess just take my word for now on where these come from. So care versus harm. We could all agree that that's a moral intuition, that that's wrong to harm somebody. And it's it's morally correct to care for them. Right. So that's care versus harm. Presumably if it doesn't conflict with the next four. Ah, so let's see what the next four are. Then you have equality and proportionality. Um, so equality and proportionality is interesting because on the one hand, you see that there's a guy who's poor and he's suffering. And you say, that's wrong. I have all this stuff. He's got nothing. That's not fair. That's inequality. So you, you, you know a lot of liberals who will, very mostly liberals who will say that. And then, however... There's a flip side to that moral intuition, which is proportionality, which is you reap what you sow. So a lot of conservatives are more likely to say, I don't want to give the welfare queen, you know, uh, to put a derogatory term to it, which is one of the quotes that he gives. I don't want to give this welfare queen my tax paying dollars because I worked hard for this money and she didn't. So there's, a, there's an inequality in that. You know, it's not about equality of outcome. It's about equality of opportunity. And that's a big debate. So those are the first two. The, the last three are hierarchy, sanctity, and what's the other one? So let's see. Oh, hierarchy, sanctity, and loyalty. Right? So hierarchy is the idea that it makes sense to have those in charge and those following. Sanctity is what you were saying, Saul, that you just kind of, and I think also what you were saying, Cynthia, that there's, we evolved to have this, this idea against cannibalism. So maybe cannibalism comes, it goes against our idea of what's sanctified and that life is holy and death defiles. And maybe even it's against our idea of loyalty. This is our friend. This is a fellow human being. Let me be loyal to him. Let me not eat him. This was my dog, my trusty dog. I'm not going to go and eat this dog. So 
Those are the five moral intuitions. Now, the most interesting part of all of this is that conservatives are more likely to value all five equally. And that explains a lot of conservative thinking. However, liberals are more likely to only value the first two, which are care versus harm and equality and proportionality, but even proportion, it's really only like one and a half, proportionality, not as much. And if anything, they scoff at very often the ideas of loyalty, hierarchy, and sanctity. And they'll say hierarchies are bad and they lead to inequality. And sanctity is a vestige, a vestigial organ in a way of a, a, a long gone long time. And it has nothing to do with, with care versus harm. Um, and then loyalty, well, you don't owe loyalty to anybody in particular. We're all equal, we're all the same. Every country in the world, right? John Lennon's whole thing of what if there were no countries and all that, that, that. you know. Uh, explain that these are universal. Um, yes, that's exactly but the there's, point. There's all these liberals that don't seem to have these same moral intuitions. Why is claiming they're universal? Good, because within any population, you're going to have liberals and conservatives who might disagree, in America at least. But then you go to the more traditional societies and they're probably more right-leaning. But he found all kinds of people in all kinds of places. I, I wish I could do more justice to it. But yeah, that's basically the way he put it, is that he made it his business to find something that was more universal because he wanted to find something that was intuitive, which is a biological thing and not just a social thing. Because if it was just a social thing, it would only be a rational thing. And he's not a moral rationalist. He's more of a rational, moral mean, intuitionist. So, what do you mean by social? Because I mean, I mean cultural, sorry, cultural. If it's only based on culture, then it kind of doesn't really hold so much water. I mean, even culture, culture is, I mean, devised by humans in a social manner based off of all these intuitions. Yes, that's and that's the point. But if it's isolated to one culture and it doesn't exist in another one, then they're not universal. That's the only point I'm trying to make. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So why bring all these things up? Well, it gives you an insight into something. It gives you an insight into your own psyche and your own way of thinking and you know, why do I care so much about this and not as much about that? Or why do, you know, why does a conservative hate when they burn the flag, but a liberal might be proud of that and say, look, it's, a, it's standing up for universalism. And Haidt's point here is not to be divisive and it's not to put one side down or lift one side up. Instead, his point was to show that both liberals and conservatives in their thinking as human moral animals it's not because we're, we're, you know, looking or out to get e each other. Instead, it's because we have different moral intuitions. And he even said, goes so far as to say that biologically, those who are more likely to be a fear aver averse, and he's done studies, you know, neuroscience studies, when you have a stronger fear aversion reaction in the brain, you're more likely to be a conservative. And if you have more of a, a, a payout when you have pleasure in the dopamine centers in the brain, you're more likely to be a liberal. And if you have less of the fear response, you're more likely to be a liberal. So that's really interesting because even within the same family, one of the boy might have more of a fear response and then join the church and then end up being more conservative. And then the girl might have more of the reward response. And then she goes off to college and then she becomes a sorority girl and then she becomes a raging liberal. And his point, I'll just you know, wrap this up with, in a bow, is that, Liberals have what to offer and conservatives have what to offer, kind of like yin and yang, and both are necessary for the stability of society. So if you have only liberals, 
then what of conservative values like loyalty, hierarchy, and sanctity, if you value those? Now, why value those? Because the sociologist Emil Durkheim at the turn of the century quoted, uh, coined this idea called anomie. Anomie is the idea that once you see everything in the world as just a social construct and you reduce it to, ever, to just that, you remove the idea of real meaning in society and society in a way loses its soul. And when society loses its soul, the rates of depression, anxiety, OCD, PTSD, you name it, are all going to skyrocket. Rabbi Sachs has written extensively on this. And when everything becomes nothing more than a social construct, that's what happens. So that's if you only have the liberal values. And he, he talks about, you know, being on a college campus as a professor and overhearing on the next table over, a girl said something to her a girl, you know, her friend who's a girl, I don't think we're in a romantic relationship. She said, oh, if I were your boyfriend, I'd be, you know, all over you in, in a very, I, I, I'm not quoting word for word. It was a very uh, licentious way of saying it and talking about the sexual act in a very, um, you know, haphazard way. And he said, I had two reactions at that moment, says Height. He says, on the one hand, I felt like that's hilarious the way that she said that. And that's maybe the more of the liberal voice inside of him. On the other side, he's like, he had just come back from India after staying there, I think, for maybe six months or more. And he felt a little bit dirty. He felt a little dirtiness to like, how could you treat sex as just something to throw out there as something that's so casual? It's not treating with enough sanctity. And he was so surprised by himself after coming back from India, he decided to adopt a lot of those more conservative practices that he learned there. And the traditional practices, removing the shoes before getting in the house and, you know, come uh, the time for 9-11, he started putting an American flag on his, on his car. And he's like, my, my professor friends are going to laugh at me because it's so particularistic. It's the opposite of the universalism. It's about loyalty to my country. But he's like, I was burning with this passion of loyalty to my country after this happened. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's okay to have different moral intuitions at different times. So now what's the, the benefits of liberalism? He talks about it used to be that they had lead inside of the uh, gasoline, inside the gasoline tanks of uh, a lot of motor vehicles. And, you know, it was very cheap to make lead gasoline. And of course, there were very high rates of uh, mental illness, really specifically uh, intellectual disability. And once, who did it take? Finally, a group of liberals said, this is not right. We need to, it doesn't matter if it's not going to be good for business. We need to stop having lead in the air. And once they did that, the rates of intellectual disability went down like crazy. So if it wasn't for those, that liberal mindset, we wouldn't have had that kind of a benefit. So there's benefits to both things and there needs to be a balance. Now, why is this so important? Because one thing I mentioned earlier about, about yin and yang, obviously the balance within society, the balance within yourself, positive and negative male and female, it exists everywhere in society. But one thing that, that he, the, the idea of enemy that, uh, and Emil Durkheim, one thing people like to do very often is to completely reduce everything and say, it's only just this that X, Y, and Z is only just this. You as a person are only just molecules or your idea, love is only oxytocin or, or uh, oxytocin plus dopamine plus whatever. And they try to reduce something that's an emergent experience to just its constituents. And that is a tremendous assault on truth because 
like we've been trying to say this whole time, there's no absolute way of looking at reality. Everything exists as relativistic. So they're all relative realities. So on one, on the one hand, the dual plane that we're living on is one relative reality. And don't go abandon your family to go seek enlightenment and seek oneness with God. You know, you have an obligation on this plane. But on the other hand, if you talk to somebody who's had a mystical experience, they'll say, no, that was the realest thing ever. This non-dual plane of everything just is and everything is perfect and you can do no wrong. And then you talk about the personality level and all the psychodynamics happening. And then you could talk about physics and say, okay, it really is just molecules. But it's not only this or only that. Part of being a human being is the ability to wear different hats at different times and the ability to engage the world in very different ways. And I think that's a beautiful thing just from, I hope, from what we spoke about with Jonathan Hyde and, and other stuff is to shed light on what it means to be a human being and to shed light on this elephant that's living inside of you. Who the heck is this guy or girl and what is he or she doing and how do I relate to him or her? So once you get this insight into the way that he or she works, you can open yourself more to being a rational person and also being a mystical person being emotional, but also being logical and balancing the two and not trying to force the elephant to do something, but also not letting it run rampant and also being a good advisor. And when you become that lawyer, just notice, okay, I'm a lawyer again. I'm just defending. And I think this will lead to a lot of things that are conducive to more spiritual balance in our lives. So thank you everybody for joining and I'll open it up to questions and comments. Neat Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no pressure. Anybody on Zoom in person? Yeah. Why do we think that um, moral intuitions or an intuition-based morality is, is any less chaotic than socially constructed morality? So I don't think for him it was about what's more chaotic or not. For him, it was about what's the truth? Where does morality actually come from? And his intuition told him. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, it's a very funny thing. <laughs> he just based on his studies of rational. yeah, there's no there's no rational approach to you know explain a lot of these different things. Was he and a he, theist? Was he a theist? Yeah. I don't uh, height. He he did not call himself one. I don't think I feel so. Like most theists don't bother trying to find a rational or an intuitional yeah. basis for morals. They just leave that up to God. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Haidt is a theist. I think he does talk about the meaning of life externally versus the meaning within life. And that's something we can discuss next time also, which is super interesting. But yeah, he never mentions in particular believing in a traditional God that some of us might believe in. It's more of like, a, but uh, to be honest, yeah, it might drive very well with a lot of these more open concepts of like panentheism and stuff like that he might agree with. But yeah, I, I think, think the, um, yeah. yeah, just, I mean, I think it's a good question, you know, trying to think about you know, like how we arrive at morality. I think, um, you know, we just kind of pick it up based on our society and, you know, our parenting and whatnot. And then we just kind of have an intuitive, you know, feeling as to, to what's good and what's bad. And, and we feel it in our gut. Um, and then, you know, you have the rationalists who, you know, like Kant or, or whatever, uh, and uh, they, they came up with, you know, trying to understand, you know, how do you decide if something's good or bad, what's ethical, what's not, you know, looking at behavior, and then they have to look at, you know, different ways of valuing 
you know, uh, utilitarianism and different things. But a lot of times it becomes, I mean, if you read it and study, it becomes somewhat like recursive, like so that there is no real, it, it reaches its limits, you know, the rational uh, kind of approach to morality. It, it, you can't always get answers out of it. Uh, yeah. And I guess if you're being honest, you know, you might want to come up with a, a, a more simplistic explanation and, and just use, you know, intuition as your guide. I mean, it's not wrong um, to do it that way uh, yeah. because yeah. you can't, you can't always rationalize through these, these complex, you know, moral issues. You can make lists and pros and cons and say, well, if I approach it this way, I can come up with this solution. I can approach it this way. I come up, but you still can't make a decision uh, in many cases, you know, with a lot of those classic moral uh, dilemmas. And then I just wanted to mention, you know, I thought the concept, if you look at your life and look at your desires and what, you know, like what you want to accomplish, whether you're talking about it, you know, on a micro scale or a macro scale, you know, like macro is like, okay, I want to get married. I want to have a family. I want to have a career. I want to have money or, you know, whatever, or micro is, you know, just like, what do I want to do today? But, um, you know, no matter what, it, it starts with like, your own internal desires, which is the elephant here. I mean, in this analogy that we were talking about early, earlier. And then you have the rider is like more like, okay, how do I accomplish this? How do I, wow. like, I want to have, you know, like sex with a woman. Okay, fine. But I, I, you know, I can't just like find someone on the street. Like I need to come up with a plan here, you know, like, <laughs> right? <laughs> like I need to do something morally, like, you know, yeah. like I got, okay, I'm going to go to a bar. I'm going to get a dating site. I'm going to, you know, whatever, you know, have a drink, maybe that'll loosen me up. You, you know, you're going to come up with like a plan and that's the, the rider. He's like, okay, well, this is how we're going to go about, you know, this, this plan, you know, we're going to, you know, going to meet people. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and that's how we're going to achieve, you know, our goals, like, like, like anything else, you know, in life. But it starts with something you can't really explain, which is your, your emotions and your desires, um, you know, and then you, you have to kind of rationalize things afterwards. So it, yeah. it seems true to me. Absolutely. No, that's, uh, that sounds perfect. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. I think so much of what we do and what we are is to try to accomplish the goals that the elephant really wants. And once you realize that, that it really is just the elephant that wants this stuff, you're able to play the game in a smarter way as the rational mind. Do you think, um, our religious aspirations are also primarily driven by the elephant mm. or by the rider or by a back and forth between the elephant and the rider? That is a great question. And I have a quote for next week that will hopefully address exactly that from William James, who basically, just to give a sneak preview, he says that it really is both and that the mystical experience actually plays off of both. And it's not one blind thing going on. So, yeah, great, uh, great question. All right, everybody, thank you very much. Thank you. Zach, right, thank have a good week, everyone. See you next week, hopefully. Thank you, Michael. It's really good. Thank, thank you, you so Michael. much. Thank you for coming. Michael, put us on. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh-huh. What's up? Hold on. Stop recording. Oh, yeah.